Somebody tell me what book we're turning to. Where were we when we left off in our midweek services? It's been a long time, hasn't it? Pop test. If you don't pass it, I'm going to church you tonight. Philippians, Philippians. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. I want you to be fine in the book of Philippians. Let me tell you what I want to do. I want to give you some snippets. We had just completed looking at chapter 2. And so before getting into the text of chapter 3, I want to give you some snippets out of the book of Philippians. I want to remind us of some things about the book itself. I won't give you all the introduction, of course. We took two messages to do that, if not three. And then there were six or seven messages out of chapter number one and six or seven out of chapter two. I'll give you a snippet out of each of those. But I want to say some things about the book itself. There are a lot of themes in the book of Philippians. Of course, the, uh, the great theme of the book of Philippians is that of joy, right? Some 18 or 19 times. You'll find that joy is mentioned either as joy, rejoicing, rejoiced, Um, joy in some way or another. Paul goes and rings the bell. He strikes the note over and again of this thing of joy. If you'll remember, it's been some time, of course, ago, but we said that this is Paul's love letter to a special church. Uh, I think the first preacher I ever heard say that the epistle of Philippians was... um, was a letter, was Paul's letter to his sweetheart church. First preacher I ever heard say that was a theologian. It was Brother Billy Canoy, about 1990 on a cassette tape. Brother Doug Jones and them used to have Dr. Canoy the fall of every year until he got cancer before God called him home. I've heard many preachers call the church at Philippi Paul's sweetheart church since. I've said that a number of times. One writer of yesteryear called the book of Philippians the New Testament Psalm 23. And there's a special note to the book of, or to the, uh, to the 23rd Psalm, right? It means much to us. We lean on the 23rd Psalm in life and either, even around the funeral home. Quite often you'll hear the 23rd Psalm read or quoted. We lean upon it. And so we do with the book of Philippians Some things about the church, you'll remember this, because we took two or three nights while we were getting into our study to mention this. Paul loved the church at Philippi. The church at Philippi loved Paul. You remember, it seems that Paul says to the believers at Philippi, to the assembly there, you got all of me. I'm all in. If you need me, you've got all of me. I pray for you. I love you. I've preached to you. I've won many of you to Christ. And it is as though they say, Paul, we're all in too. You've got all of us. You've got our hearts. As one old boy would say, you've got my heart and everything. Amen? It's a beautiful letter. I love it. As I was getting ready to try to get into the third chapter this morning, I kept thinking about where we had been. And so I don't want us to miss the mood of the book as we get into chapter 3. The Lord willing, next week. It's interesting, in the book of Philippians, the word sin is not mentioned one time. Um, He really doesn't do, um, he does a bit of correcting, he does a bit of instructing in the book of Philippians, but he doesn't do a whole lot of rebuking, does he? 
It's not the, it's not the, the undertone of the book at all. The book of Philippians is one of four what we call prison epistles that come from the pen of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. There's Ephesians, there's Philippians, there's Colossians, and there is Philemon. And of course, uh, though Paul was in bondage, and we'll say something about this in just a moment, physically he's in bondage. You remember we spent a little bit of time one night talking about he probably was the freest man on earth. He's free spiritually. He's free mentally. He's not bogged down with the oppression that is upon him. Uh, This world doesn't have a hold on him. I think the design of many of our trials is to set us free. We have a hard time escaping our trials, don't we? They get the best of us. Many times we cry out like David did in the Psalms, when my heart is overwhelmed. That word overwhelmed speaks of making every step a danger to falling. There's such darkness around me. I'm so confused, I don't know where to go. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. I know there's a place I ought to be. I know I can get there, and I know you're there, Lord, but I can't see you. I can't seem to get to that place. You come to where I am and lead me to the rock that is higher than I because I'm in a low place. The older I get, the more I'm convinced. The design of our trials is to set us free. The design of darkness is to lead us to the light. And so we learn this even in observing Paul's life, looking at him in in the book of Philippians. He's not broken in his mind. His spirit's not broken. You ever seen a child that was abused? A little boy or a little girl? They're broken. I mean, they're beat down. They're broken. You can get that way even as a child of God if you're not careful. And that's why it's so important to have a walk with Christ. Paul has a walk with Christ. You remember the church at Philippi has a, has a testimony, that many-fold testimony. It's got a jailhouse testimony. You remember that? You remember you, you read about the church at Philippi's early beginnings in Acts chapter 16. It, it's got a jailhouse testimony. It's got a riverbank testimony. It's got a prayer meeting testimony. You remember that? There was Lydia, some other women. They'd met on a riverbank. Acts 16 bears it out. And they were doing their best to honor God in their prayer meeting. Paul comes upon them. He shares Christ with them. They are saved. Um, Eventually, there's a little slave girl. She was demon-possessed. The demon is cast from her. Some men made merchandise of her. She was a soothsayer. She would have been a palm reader or a card reader. Or she would have worked the lines at 1-800-PSYCHIC. But she gets saved by the grace of God. These men that made merchandise of her, they're upset, and there's an uproar in town. And so they put Paul and Silas in jail. That's where the jailhouse testimony comes from. Evidently, they were not bitter. But those who were also in the jail that the Philippian jailer was overseeing, evidently they were saved too. Because at midnight, as Paul and Silas sang praises, there was an earthquake. And the bands were loosed. And the doors were opened. And the Philippian jailer wakes up. And he takes a light. Uh, After Paul cries out unto him, he was going to commit suicide. It would have cost him his life if the prisoners had escaped. 
And Paul cries out unto him, and he says, Do thyself no harm. We're all here. And he takes a light, and he goes in. He says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they lead him to Christ. And another beautiful scene takes place. He takes them, Paul and Silas, to his own home. He may have been responsible for their stripes, the lashes, the whelps on their back. He takes them to his house. He feeds them. He washes their stripes. And evidently, Paul preaches the gospel to the jailer's wife and his children. And they're saved. Preacher friend of mine, many, many years ago, he was preaching revival services in a pastor many years ago. He said he got under a burden for a family of seven, five children. They didn't have a car. Um, People would stop by and pick up the husband, pick up the wife, and take them home, bring them back, or take them to work, you know, and that sort of thing. Kids, of course, rode to school, but said they didn't have anything. And he said he really got under a burden for them, had invited them to church a number of times, and they weren't interested. But he said in a time of despair, he felt like it'd be another time, good time to witness to them. And he did so, felt he was prompted by the Holy Spirit. He went to see them, shared the gospel with them. He said the daddy was saved, the mother was saved. He said all five children made a profession of faith. He said the most beautiful sight he'd ever seen in his life was the following Sunday. He was on the front porch of the church, and he said there were seven heads got to bobbing up from that hillside. He said they were just happy to be there. Don't you know it was a sight at the church at Philippi? Well, this rugged jailer and his wife, they'd lived all those years not knowing Christ, and now they know him. And we don't know how many children he had. They didn't have pews. Of course, best we can tell from church history, there was no such thing as a church building to meet in until about the 4th century A.D., right? Can you imagine if they had places around a shop or a house? They met in homes. It's where the church at Corinth was started. It's where the church at Philippi was started, in a home. Can you imagine what it was for the flipping jailer and his wife to sit down and their children, two or three, four, whatever it was, and over across from them, there's this girl that's, she's been wild, she's been demon-possessed, and now she's got the peace of God that's ruling her life. Here's this wealthy lady by the name of Lydia, seller of purple. Purple dye was hard to come by. As a matter of fact, the purple dye was produced from a bit of oil that would come from the shellfish, come from its throat. The throat would be, of course, slit. The the oil would be extracted, and then there would be a mixture. It was a tedious process. So if you wore purple clothing, you were wealthy or or part of a royal family. here she is. Here's a little slave girl, didn't have anything, set by a lady that owned it all. And here's a man that's probably fought for the Roman army, probably known what it is to put his hands on a man or put a spear through a man. And yet they're all worshiping together. Church is a beautiful thing, you know. It, it reminds me, the jailhouse testimony, the Prayer meeting testimony, the riverbank testimony, reminds me that every church has its own testimony. Every church bears its own testimony. 
Some churches are singing churches. I, I can take you to two or three churches in northeast Mississippi. They, they know uh, how to sing their parts. And I, I can take you to a small congregation in Tishomingo County, just north of Dennis, Mississippi. Been preaching there 12, 13, 14 years in a row, I guess. They all know their parts, and they sing them. And they sing out of the Blue Mulls book. I don't know my parts. I look at the pastor, try to figure out where he's getting in. And when, when I figure out where he's getting in on the second, third, and fourth verse, that's where I try to get in at. I don't have Lindsay up there to give me a nod to say, You're, that's where you get in. I don't have Lindsay to go with me to help me up there. Some churches are mission-minded churches. Some churches are known for being teaching churches. Some are known for being preaching churches. Some are churches of ministries and helps. Every church bears its own testimony. A church is not to be a, another copycat of another church. I want to try to explain what I'm saying. A church is an autonomous body. We don't do what we do because Green Valley said so or, um, or Cary Springs said so. We find where our burden is, and that's what we put in the Scriptures. The Scriptures put into us, but we'll keep coming back to our burden, right? A church is to be an autonomous body. I've said this. It's been some time, so let me say it again. If, if we really believe that a church is an autonomous, a self-governing body, then it's none of my business what another church is doing unless they're preaching heresy. I'm not going to meddle in what the church down 341 is doing. It's none of my business what they're doing. If I can't support them and pray for them, I'm not going to bother them. Does that make any sense to you? If Brother Scotty Bland and them, they're still meeting outdoors. If that works for them, nothing said we had to meet indoors. I'm for them. If that's what works for them, go for it. Nothing forbids that. Um, a church also is an indigenous body. One reason why I respect Brother Ken Trivett so much is he did not go to the poorest area of the United States of America and try to make another Temple Baptist Church where he pastored 1,200 people in Chattanooga, Tennessee. But he took what handful he had and he pastored those people. Those people don't live in Chattanooga. They don't earn wages like the people in Chattanooga. And, and so there's an indigenous body, true to the culture there. They don't do things like they did at Temple, and I respect that. But every church body bears its own testimony, bears its own testimony. Um, the church and Paul had a very special relationship. Look, if you will, at chapter number 4. And we'll get to this in several weeks down the road. In Philippians chapter number 4, verses uh, 10 through 18, the church in Paul had a very, very special relationship. And the church at Philippi was a, a mission-minded church for sure. They, they may have at times been the only ones that gave to Paul's necessities. But they may with other churches have done so. But they were very mindful of Paul. This church, through the years, has had a unique relationship with Brother Roger Mullins. We seem to have a unique relationship with Brother Ken Trivett. 
and with a handful of other missionaries. I'm grateful for that. I wish we could have a special relationship with every missionary on the planet. God's interested in reaching the lost. and We should be. The greatest investment we can make as a church is that of putting our dollars in to those that are preaching the gospel and planting churches, reaching souls. Watch this. Watch, what, watch how special they are, the relationship. Just chapter 4, verses 10 through 18 of the book of Philippians. The Bible says here, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at, your last, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again. In other words, you're giving to me. You're meeting my needs hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. What Paul is saying there is I've learned no matter where I'm at. If I have to build tents, if I have to make tents, that's what he was, his trade was. If I have to do that, so be it. One preacher from Texas, I heard him say years ago, he said, I pumped gas and pastored a church for I forget how many years. So shame in that. He said, I've learned if I have to work to provide for myself, wonderful. I'm content with that. If you give to my necessity and I'm free to preach the gospel in the morning and at night, I'm good with that. I'm content with that. I've learned to be content in whatsoever state I am. We should be the same. Whether we have much or we don't have much. Um, Paul, his pattern, his missionary pattern in the New Testament is to preach the gospel so that souls be saved. When souls are saved, he plants a church. And out of that church, there'll be young men that will surrender to preach the gospel. And he'll train them. And that's his pattern. That's his pattern through the book of Acts. It's his pattern in these New Testament epistles. He invests himself, in, a, himself in, in others that, that the gospel be, be preached on and on and on. I'm thinking about what Paul wrote to Timothy. And uh, in 2 Timothy, in chapter number 2, listen to what he wrote in verse number 1 and 2. He said, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He had to tell Timothy over and again, be strong, get your chin up. Every preacher that comes along is made up of a different personality. They're gifted uniquely differently, right? We shouldn't expect one to be an exact copy of another. Timothy was so different than Titus. You remember Paul left Titus at Crete to set things in order, to establish spiritual authority, and to teach the people to refrain from babblings. It didn't amount to anything. I don't think Timothy could have handled it. Timothy would have been the kind of young man that he would have, uh, his nerves would have bothered him so bad before the Wednesday night service. My nerves were bothering me. I was so glad to be back in here. But Timothy would have went around back, thrown his guts up. You understand what I'm saying? They were made up different. Titus, Titus would take the bull by the horns and say, if you don't like it, right there's the door. That's the way Titus is made up. Don't fault him for that. 
God knew who he was calling when he called him to preach. Paul knew he could leave Titus at Crete. Timothy wouldn't have survived there. Timothy had a gentle nature to it. All these preachers that come through, they're made up differently. You, you do know God knows what he's doing when he calls a young man to preach. But this is what he said. He said, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses. He said, Those times you sat while I preached among many people. Listen to what he says. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Four generations of preachers there. He said, Timothy, I invested in you. And it's your responsibility to invest in others. Faithful men. And it's their responsibility to preach to faithful men and teach them. Uh, You've heard me say this on countless occasions, but there's not a day, I suppose, in my life I don't speak speak to a preacher somewhere. And usually it's it's preachers that are, are hurting or struggling somewhere. Not always. But all of us, um, all of us would testify quickly of men that's invested in us. I don't want that to be in vain. There's no preacher I know that wants that to go in vain. I have fond memories of preachers of yesteryear. It was so humbling to me at a time of of much pain in my life on the front porch of our house in Thaxton when Brother Charlie Swords and his wife Miss Bonnie pulled up. I was I was working. Uh, we were trying to get in the house and Brother Charlie walked up and he held his hand, that old deep, thundering, raspy voice, and he said, Son, how are you? And I said, Brother Charlie, I'm well. And he paused and he said, you know, he said, ever since you left, uh, left Buck Andy to go pastor, he said, don't guess there's a day that I hadn't prayed for you and Amanda. That so humbled me. I didn't know anything when God saved me. I didn't even suspect anything. I'd have questions and I'd call him. He was gracious to answer me. He was gracious to answer me he used to kind of like what I do I guess this is where I got it from I always loved our Wednesday night services now I don't do something he does he would open it up for questions sometimes you would think World War III was fixing to start but even before I surrendered to preach he would ask myself and another man who is well younger my senior he's in his 80s now he buried his wife last year the other man if there was something, um, I won't ever forget the first time he did so. He knew I was studying where we were studying. And he'd say, Kevin, what do you say in that passage? And the older gentleman, we both sit on this side. Often he would ask him first, and then some others would have some input. You can get some crazy questions, though, when you open the floor up for questions. I don't think we would have it here, but we had it there. But I thank God for preachers that have invested in me. We're not going to get very far in our review, are we? 
Philippians 4, a lift off there. He learned to be content, verse 11. Verse 12, he said, For I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can take you to three passages of Scripture at least in the New Testament where Paul teaches us that when you went to bed warm and full, he was cold and hungry. In essence, he's saying, I've learned, and it's comforted me to know God knows about it. He goes on, verse 13 says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. The Christ-filled life. The Holy Spirit enabling the believer. You say, I just can't. Yes, you can. I can't in my own strength. No, you can't. But trusting Christ, you can. The sun does come up tomorrow. And though the clouds may hide the sun, it's there. He goes on writing to them, Notwithstanding, you have well done that you did communicate with my affliction. He said, I had necessities. I needed to eat. I needed to survive. You found out about that and sent to my need. What a beautiful verse of Scripture. He's communicating with them. He writes in verse 15, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated. That word communicated means gave. No church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving But ye only, for even in Thessalonica you sent once and again unto my necessity. Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. Isn't that wonderful? We have a small part. Brother Wilson, Sarah Polly's been mentioned tonight. We send a small amount of money every month. There are 20-some-odd missionaries that we have the privilege of sending a small portion each month. As he preaches the gospel, you have... Brothers and sisters from India that cannot speak the American language that are your brother, they're your sisters. And you have part in that, ladies and gentlemen. Paul said, when I've traveled and preached the gospel, you supported me. And there's fruit that abounds to your account now because of that. He says in verse number 17, he says, um, or verse number 18, excuse me, but I have all in abound, I am full having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell. Don't you know what encouraged his heart when he brought the gift? Um, Brother Gene McCraw, years ago, he's the first missionary that ever come to help me as a pastor. I was, I, I was afraid. There was this big thing between Independence and Southern Baptists, and there was a big fight in the early 90s. And, and I was afraid he wouldn't come help me. I, I, I've never known a more tender Missionary. He was a missionary to Australia for years and years. He was as a Jeremiah. He was a weeping prophet. So tender for the things of God. But he came to help. And I remember him telling about being in Australia. And people had just about quit. What few he had in the church he had planted. People had just about quit. Uh, 
they're, they're really everything, cupboards and all, had gotten bare, and he didn't know what he's going to do. And he said, he said uh, whatever time of the day it would have been there, said it was a Sunday evening back home in Brevard, North Carolina. Brother Bob Weldon got under a burden, and they took an offering that night. And he called after the service that night, and he said, and I can hear him right now, Brother Gene, I love Brother Bob Weldon. Pray for him. His health is poor. But said he said, Brother Gene, he said, I can't explain it other than the Holy Ghost himself has put, put you on our heart. And we felt like we ought to pray for you and take an offering tonight. And it is such and such dollars, and, and we want you to know we've committed to pray for you. And we're going to get this in the mail to you, and we hope it will be a blessing. And Brother Gene, he spoke of how he wept and how he spoke to Brother Bob about you just don't understand what God has done in meeting a need. And God took that and picked it up. That's what Paul's talking about when he says in a sweet-smelling odor. He said, you lifted my heart. Well, the book of Philippians. It is the epistle of joy. Let me show you this. I plan to get us some, some notebooks. We'll put our own names on it. Charity Baptist Church. You can take your own notes. Some of you try to take notes, and you can take your own notes and keep your notebook, and it'll be your church notebook. I plan to get some of that made up soon. I've got an idea for some of that. I've shown it to Amanda today. I think it's a good idea, but you may want to underline some of this. You won't have to write this down. You can just underline this if you didn't the first time we went through it. It's the epistle of joy. Watch this, verse number 4 of chapter 1. Always in every prayer of mine for you all making requests with, there it is, joy. See that? In verse number 18 of chapter number 1, twice he will strike the cord of joy. Verse 18, what then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice. See the joy there? Yea, and will rejoice. Verse number 25, he speaks of your furtherance and joy of faith. Verse 26, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Chapter 2, verse 2, fulfill ye my joy. Verse number 16 of chapter 2, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. Verse 17, twice. He says, I joy and rejoice with you all. Verse 18, twice. He says, for the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. Verse 28 of chapter 2. I send him therefore the more carefully that when ye see him again you may rejoice and that I may be the less sorrowful. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice. Verse 3 of chapter 3. For we are the circumcision which do worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Moving over to chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, uh, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown. Here's the key verse to the book. I'm convinced your study Bible may give you a different key verse. That's fine. But verse number 4, I believe this is, I believe you can put the whole burden of the book of Philippians rested on this one verse. In chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. And then in chapter number 4 and verse number 10, he says, But I rejoice in the Lord 
greatly. I mentioned chapter 4 and verse 4, at least in my heart, is the key verse to the book of Philippians. Um, it, it also shows us Christ to be the abundance of our joy. He said, rejoice in the Lord always. You can always rejoice, uh, rejoice in the stock market or what's being placed on you by someone else. Somebody said something. Somebody did something. You feel you've been treated unfairly. You can't rejoice in that. If you have a threatening disease, you may not can rejoice in the, the disease, but you can always rejoice in the Lord. I said to someone just a few days ago that I'm grateful that one of these days this world of sorrow will soon pass. We rejoice in that, right? We, we do. We rejoice in that. Paul teaches us in the book of Philippians, if you'll look with me to chapter 4 and verse number 6, he teaches us not to worry. He teaches us not to worry. And I want to pause and say something before reading the verse. Um, your tendency may be to worry. Or you may know someone that has the tendency to worry. Before you get too hard on them, understand that you too have something you struggle with. It may not be worry and fretting, but it'll be something else. But I'm glad that over and again, the Bible teaches us not to. Not to worry. Chapter 4, verse 6. Watch what Paul writes here. Be careful for nothing. You know what that means? It means don't worry about anything. That's what it's saying. Not anything. He says be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. That's how you overcome worry. He says, don't worry, in the first phrase. And he teaches you how to overcome it in the latter part. When we were trying to introduce the book of Philippians uh, some time ago. Of course, we come across these, uh, these lines that you've, some of you ladies have probably got it uh, hanging on the wall somewhere or in some of your writings somewhere. This will be familiar to you. I wanted to repeat this tonight. Someone has written, when we see the lilies spinning in distress, taking thought to manufacture loveliness. When we see the birds all building barns for store, it will then be time for us to worry, not before. Then someone else has left these words for us, said the sparrow to the robin, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush around and worry so, said the robin to the sparrow. I think it really must be they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. You remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Five times he said, don't worry in chapter 6. He said, how many of you by worrying can add one stature, one cubit to a stature? You can't change it. Five times he said, be careful for nothing. Don't worry. Don't fret. He teaches us that. Psalm 37, the psalmist said, fret not. Let me give you two or three more things, and, and we'll, we'll conclude tonight, pick up here next time, and try to catch us back up to chapter number three. But uh, we see Paul's heart in the book of Philippians. He has the heart of a pastor. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. He has the heart of a pastor. Chapter 1, verse 7, even, it is, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. You know, that's the greatest place a friend can have you is, is in their heart, you know. I mean, they may go to China, but you're there with them. 
you understand what I'm saying? He says, I have you in my heart. I, 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 of course, I think all of Paul's writings bared out bears a pastoral heart. Um, Paul found great joy in folks being saved, lost people being saved. He took great joy when churches were planted, established, and, and held the sound doctrine. He took great joy in seeing some of those preacher boys stand on their own and preach the word. But Paul is all about truth and people. He communicates truth and he wants people to get truth and walk in that truth. So he has the heart of a pastor. Chapter number 1 and verse number 12, he has a heart that is free of envy. Watch this. Chapter 1, verse 12. We'll say something about this next week. But chapter 1, verse 12. But I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather into the furtherance of the gospel. You remember he's in prison. And in the context, verses 12 to 19, there were those that took advantage of him being down. And they talked about him. They used their platform to preach, to take shots at him, and he wasn't even there. And word gets back to him. He said, it doesn't matter with me as long as Christ is preached. If people are better for it, so be it. The Holy Spirit will weed that other stuff out. He has a heart filled with Christ. Chapter number 1, verse number 21, he writes this, probably the most familiar verse out of the book of Philippians. For to me, to live is Christ, he says, and to die is gain. All of us want to go to heaven. We just, if we'll be honest, we just don't really want to go too soon, right? I ain't getting a load up tonight, are you? Oh, Dr. B.R. Lakin, the orator, the old country preacher. He was preaching when Falwell was saved. And no matter how... Known Jerry Falwell was, he never forgot who his, who his pastor was, old B.R. Lincoln. And he said, you know, he said, I don't want to die. He said, as a matter of fact, he said, if God would tell me where I would be when I died, I'd never go there. Most of us, same way. Paul says, die, let's go. For to me to live is Christ, and to die, you remember Paul was called up in the third heaven. 2 Corinthians 12 bears that out. He said, I've been there. Let's go there. Dying, you do that one time. It's a valley a child of God goes through. You do that one time. I've often tried, and taking the scriptures, tried to, in my mind, imagine what death must be for the child of God. I honestly believe you step out of one sphere into another sphere. You're in the presence of Christ. What is there to fear? This flesh fears it, though. We dread it. We love our family and our loved ones. His heart is filled with Christ. For to me to live is Christ. He's preeminent. He's tops. He's supreme. He's number one in my life. His heart is fixed on heaven. Chapter 1, verse 21. Paul teaches us to rejoice even in times of trial. Let me read you another little thing, and then I promise you we'll, we'll get us called up to chapter 3. Next week, I'll give you just some snippets of each of the sections of chapter 1 and chapter 2 next Wednesday night, the Lord willing. But Paul teaches us to rejoice even in times of trial. May I remind you, this is the epistle of joy. And may I also remind you, this is one of Paul's prison epistles. If anyone had place to be bitter, he did. But he didn't. Again, he says... Rejoice in the Lord always. 
And again, I say, rejoice. I'm glad God chose Paul for that prison, aren't you? To set the right example because I might not would have set the right example. I've come across this many times. It's in a no telling it, the commentaries that I have. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chattered all the way, but left me none the wiser for what she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word she said, that all the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Paul is your New Testament Job. Outside of Christ, nobody suffers in the New Testament like Paul. And he did it for simply preaching the gospel. Let's stand with this, Miss. You've been very patient. We didn't get very far, but we will. We'll, we'll cover two chapters next week. And that'll get us set and ready for uh, chapter number three. And the Lord willing, we'll look at verses one, two, and three uh, when we get there. All right. Let's dismiss in prayer. Thank you for being here. Haley, thank you for letting me put you on the spot. Jake, would you dismiss us in prayer, please? Thank you both for being here.